Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. Today, I'm talking to Jennifer Anton. You may have heard some of the buzz about her latest book, her debut novel, Under the Light of the Italian Moon. It came out in March, and I actually talked to her in March, but it was after the release of her book, and I had so many authors that I wanted to get out close to the release of their book that it ended up just getting pushed back until July. So I'm finally releasing this um interview. And um, Jennifer had so many interesting things to say. I do want to kind of give a little caveat because um, you'll notice in the interview that we have kind of different beliefs about some things and that I challenge her on some of her views. Um, There was one thing that I let slide and I just wanted to bring it up because you guys listen to me every week and I want to be completely transparent with you. Um, but she did mention abortion briefly, and the the in the context in which she mentioned it, it sounded like she thinks that it should be legal. And you know, because it's not a political show, really, I didn't want to get into a big political discussion. But I want to make sure you guys know that I disagree with that. I believe that every life is sacred, and um, I am pro life. I wanted to make sure that I cleared that up in case that was confusing for any of you regular listeners. Um, but I think that Jennifer did have a lot of good things to say, and it was an interesting discussion. So I hope that you enjoy listening to us talk about her book, Under the Light of the Italian Moon. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Allison. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Your first novel, Under the Light of the Italian Moon, released last week, March 8th. Can you tell us about this book? Sure. sure. So Under the Light of the Italian Moon is inspired by a true story, and it's a story of love and women's resilience during the rise of fascism and World War II. It tells the story of Nina Argenta. She's the daughter of a very strong-willed Italian midwife, and Nina falls in love with a boy named Pietro Ponte, who is immigrating to the coal mines of America. And their love has to sort of continue long distance as she stays behind with her mother in Italy during the rise of fascism and Mussolini. And then eventually they lose touch and she has to try to survive through Nazi occupied Italy on her own without having any contact with her husband in hopes that they will be reunited. Mm. Wow. So they, they got married before he immigrated? Uh, well, it okay. all kind of happens within the book, so I don't want to give too much. Oh, away, okay. But, um, but yes, they do have a long distance relationship uh, throughout the book. Wow! Wow! Um, well, the cover is gorgeous, and you've been getting yeah, you've been getting rave reviews so far. It's the number one new release in biographical fiction on Amazon. Um, tell me about the inspiration for this novel. Sure. So, I mean, I grew up in America. I grew up in Chicago and my grandmother and my my grandfather were Italian. So my mom is 100% Italian. And as I grew up, I, you know, I really felt like an American kid, except for the fact that my grandmother, you know, every once in a while would be on the phone to Italy. And I didn't feel like the granddaughter of an immigrant. But Mm -hmm. when we were uh, studying World War II in high school, and we started talking a little bit about Italy, but not very much, I went to her house and asked her about it. And she told me that, yes, indeed, 
it had impacted her. She was there and actually Nazis had occupied their town. And she told me about some of the atrocities that had happened in the town of Fonzazo where she grew up. But as a teenager, mm. you kind of, you know, you don't have time to follow up and, and think about those things, even if they are very interesting. And so in 2006, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I decided to ask my grandmother some questions and I bought a notebook and put all these questions in it. But unfortunately, after my baby shower, she ended up going into the hospital. A few months later, I went into the hospital, ended up in heart failure after I had my daughter. And two weeks Mm. later, my grandmother passed away, never getting to meet my daughter. So there was this whole moment of kind of womanhood, motherhood, you know, my, my daughter joining the world, my grandmother leaving, my mom trying to take care of us all. And what I saw was this extreme strength, female strength. And I thought, I need to discover what is behind this Ital- the strength of these Italian women. And I wanted to learn more and get the answers that I didn't get to get from my grandmother. So that's really, that became an obsession. And I eventually even got my Italian citizenship and we eventually moved abroad to Milan. Wow. Mm-hmm. So writing this book, um, oh, it's such a, I, I don't know, just like such a heart-wrenching tale about the inspiration. And then it sounds like writing this book really changed your life completely. It did. I mean, it definitely did. It was, it, you know, it wasn't just this book. I mean, I've al- I've always had a wanderlust. I've always loved traveling. My husband and I always wanted to raise our daughter as a global citizen. So it wasn't just mm. the book, but the book definitely did change my life because it was a journey of 14 years where I was going back and forth from Italy, talking to people in the U.S. who had immigrated or Canada that had immigrated who had lived through World War II talking to people in Italy, reconnecting the family. I became sort of the glue that reconnected the Italian family back to the American and Canadians, which was pretty amazing. And then my daughter throughout that whole time, you know, she started off as just, you know, kind of in my womb and I was not a mother. And then all of a sudden I watched her, she would come with me and sit at these tables with these elderly people as I asked them questions and you know, she was two, then she was six, then she was eight, then she was 10. You know, she just kept coming with me on all these trips as I uncovered the the stories of the, all of these people that I incorporated into the, the fictional book. And, and so, yeah, so it did really change, I think, my life as well as my daughter's life in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So do you want to talk more about the connections between mothers and daughters that, and how that's important in the novel? Sure. So as I said, the, the main character is Nina Argenta. She's the daughter of a very strong-willed Italian midwife. And this midwife is known as La Capitana. She's so strong-willed and she is really a force of nature. Her name is Adelaja de la Santa Argenta. And she she's studies a at University of Padova. So she actually is able to get formally trained in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And she basically delivers all the babies in the town of Fonzazo and all the villages surrounding. So she's very well respected by the church, by all the people, etc. And Nina kind of grows up a little bit in her shadow, wanting to be wanting to have kind of her own path and something different. You know, she sees that her mom's able to achieve something different than all the other women around her, but she doesn't necessarily think she wants to follow in her mother's footsteps. So it's kind of that desire to, you know, get out from under your mother's shadow and and have an identity of your own. While, by the way, being in a society that is telling you stay home, have babies for the country, and and you're getting all sorts of pressures, whether it be from the government, from the church, etc., of what you're supposed to do as a woman. So so there's this connection really between them and and 
And then, of course, Nini eventually becomes a mother as well and has her own daughters. And so this book really takes place over the course of, of 20 years. It starts in 1914 and it ends in, in 1946. So you get a lot of the, the family saga, if you will, the relationship between Nina and Adelaja and the relationship between Nina and her daughters. And you really see how, you know, we evolve. We sort of become our mothers and our children eventually start to take care of us. And it's mm-hmm. crazy how that works. But I think there's a there's a real magic and there's really a power to it that I don't think we identify as women. And especially last week as of International Women's Week, I think that, and, and you know, Women's History Month this month, I think that yeah. there's such a power in our capability, not just as mothers, but in that power to create, and we don't recognize it, and and we certainly don't um, push enough to to get equal places in society in terms of governments and, and organizations and so forth. And you know, if you see what happens to Nina during during this time period, because everything impacts her from World War One, immigration, the rise of fascism, World War Two, Nazi occupation. I mean, this woman lives through all of that. But no women have equal seats at the table to be deciding what's going to happen in government. Yet their children die, their husbands have to die, their husbands have to immigrate, even though they have no control over that. They they control what they what's in front of them, the household and you know, keeping their families safe, trying to keep their 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 loved ones together, but they don't have any control of the greater powers that are happening in Rome that are impacting them on a daily basis. And this is true today. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, so how much of the story is actually true or biographical about your grandmother? So quite a bit, quite a bit of it is true. I, w- as I was writing this, I basically tried to take all the stories I possibly could and, and every detail from the people that I interviewed, I tried to embed it in the novel. And then I laid all the stories that I knew or was told over the top of the historical time period that was happening and then did research with nonfiction books, as well as fiction that was written during the period, and tried to weave in and fill in any of the gaps in the story with fiction, but fiction that was very plausible, if you will, in order to kind of tie it all together. So quite a bit of it is true, or there, if it's not 100% true, then there's, a, there's an element or there was a seed of a story that was there that I then kind of blew out more specifically. Right. And how did you go about researching that and finding out, especially since you didn't get to talk to your grandmother about the questions you had? Well, I was really lucky, as I said, that there were quite a few people still who had survived, who had lived with her in Fonzazo. So my aunt was one of those people. And she really kind of took Mm -hmm. off where my grandmother left off. And then she started introducing me to other people, both in the US and Canada and in Italy, that I then would, you know, travel over, sit down, meet with, interview with a translator. I went, uh, I met with the priest and the, the church rectory was incredible because there's so many records there. And then just a lot of older people in the town who would tell me different stories. La Capitana was very well known. She still has stories told about her. There's also a book that is called. Okay, so is that, I'm yeah. sorry, is that your grandmother or like her mother? It's, so it's, it's revealed in, in the book, but. Uh, oh, okay. My, you can't tell yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. It's probably better if I don't. Yeah. But, um, but no, she's still very well known in the town. So there's, there's still a lot of stories that kind of folklore that go on around her. And, and there's also a lot of commemorative monuments within the town for the things that had happened there. And on one of those monuments is her, is her name. 
So, so yeah, wow. so it was all, all of that really. And, and it is quite life-changing, but then a lot of books as well. So Victoria de Grazia is a, a scholar who wrote a book called How Fascism Ruled Women. And then mm-hmm. Perry Wilson is a scholar who wrote about the, the rural women under fascism. And so that those books were also very helpful in educating me on the types of activities that were happening and how, and how, how it impacted midwives and women. Wow. Okay. Do you want to talk more about women in Italy during the rise of fascism? I mean, you just mentioned that. Do you want to talk about what you learned about that? Yeah, I think, you know, learning about women in Italy during the rise of fascism. Wow. It's, it's really something that is not, has not been uncovered or talked about. I mean, as you know, when we, when we study it, when we study World War II in America, we don't really go into detail about Italy and certainly not about the people who are there. So as I started looking into it, especially how things would impact a midwife, it was fascinating to see how Mussolini's reign really impacted women negatively. I mean, coming out of World War I, just like the, around the rest of the world, women you know, had, had joined the workforce, they had, had taken factory jobs, and they were interested in, in the vote, and they were interested in a lot, having a lot more control over their lives out of World War I. But Mus- mm-hmm. Mussolini really quickly stepped back away from giving women the vote, and ultimately he became a dictator, so it didn't matter who was voting. But one right. of the biggest things that he did was he impacted reproductive rights because he wanted to grow the amount of people, he wanted to grow the population, both so that he could drive an empire and so that he could expand his military. So he insisted that women should be staying at home and having as many babies as possible. He restricted contraceptive education, made sure that abortion was very much illegal, and mm-hmm. and really um, put measures in place to make sure that women were were there to to have babies for the patria. That was their main role. So so definitely a regression in feminism under Mussolini. Okay. Um, and how did that impact um, midwives? So it became, it was really about control because midwives had this access to women and to women's bedrooms and to women's, you know, sort of what, what they did behind, behind the scenes that really men could not get into. And so mm. at first he introduced something called On Me which was all about making sure that there was better care for for pregnant women, care for children to reduce the infant mortality rate. And then, and that sounded like it was good news, obviously, that was a positive thing, bringing in health, basically better health care. So midwives would have been impressed by that. But along with all those things came a lot of control. He wanted to he wanted to control all the different elements that that the midwives were were doing and and have them really reporting back and following what he wanted them to do. And of course, that was not something that that they were interested in. And at mm-hmm. one point, my great-great-grandmother, um, La Capitana, I, I, I will say that because maybe people won't remember as they remember as they read the book, <laughs> right. but um, she, there's actually a violation brought up against her and, and ultimately it, it really impacts her. And so, so yeah, that's, that's part of, part of the book. Okay. What part does emigration play in this novel? You mentioned that um, Pietro, is that his name? Yes, that's he right. He emig- emigrated to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what else do we learn about emigration or what, what yeah. did you learn in your research? Yeah, so I mean, at the, be- at the beginning of the book is where immigration really plays a role. And that's because 
she she knows Pietro from being around town. He's a you know young boy who goes to school with her sister, and he's he's moving to America, which Nina finds very interesting that that he's doing that. So he's he's leaving for America, and later she finds out that her brother is also leaving, which is breaking her mother's heart, and which ultimately leads her to make the promise that she won't she'll never leave her, and that's something that that plays out throughout the rest of the book. But immigration plays a role in the sense that you had a lot of men who were leaving Italy because there weren't opportunities and because, you know, they were, they were really struggling with in the rural communities. So they would move abroad, work in the coal mines, work in, you know, very difficult jobs and send money back to the families and ultimately not see their wives for large amounts of time. And, and so that had a, has a big impact, obviously, on, on women and their independence and on families. You, you know, I mean, Many children yeah. didn't know their fathers until until much later in life. So it definitely had had an impact on these women. But again, we don't really spend too much time thinking about that, thinking about the independence of these women when their hu- their husbands are nowhere around. They're right. doing everything yeah. on their own. Yeah. Um, so what do you hope readers will take away from this book? That's a great question. I hope reader. there's a few things I hope readers will take away. First of all, I think there's a there's a major theme in the book that women create and men destroy, yet women are forgotten and men are the ones who are remembered. And that is a bit of a provocative question, but I think it's one that we have to to look at because certainly, you know, with a story of a midwife and and births and so forth, the women really do bring the the children into the world and it's through our bodies that kind of humanity springs forth. And yet women are are the ones who are ultimately often erased from history. Whereas we remember the men who are the ones who are creating the wars. And as I mentioned, the women don't really have a seat in the t- at the table or an equal seat at the table to make those decisions about, about starting those wars or going after power. So I certainly think that's one key takeaway. Uh, the, the connection with women and, and, and their mothers and daughters, I think that's also you know, something that is a big theme in the book. And, and really that whole concept of you know, your mother was somebody before she was a mother, she had her own personality. She had her whole own dreams, et cetera. But often as we, as we see and, and know our mothers, we think of them only for who they are for us and as they define themselves for us. And so I, I hope that it's going to cause conversations with mothers, daughters, uh, granddaughters, and their, and their nanas, et cetera, really asking them, who were you before you were a mom? Or who were you when you were young? Tell me about your life then. Because those are the things that I really wish I would have spent more time asking my grandmother about. And those are things, especially today during this COVID time period, we're losing these older people more quickly than ever. And it's really Mm -hmm. time for us to embrace that moment with them, sit down, ask them some questions and truly listen and see what will happen. And and you'll never regret that. I regret not doing more of that. So I I do hope that coming out of this book, we have people doing that. I think that would be a, a great key takeaway. Right. Yeah, that's such an interesting concept. We so seldom think about our parents before they were parents. Um, but with your your take on men being destroyers and women being creators, it sounds almost like you're um you like might be a man hater. Is that the the way you want to come across? Or no, that- you know what? It's not a man hater. It's about it's about being provocative with these questions because I, I do mm-hmm. think 
unfortunately, as I mentioned, we are nowhere near equality right now when it comes to the tops of governments or or corporations. We're nowhere near, and we've been patient for for years. These women were were patient. They were they were suffering in silence, doing what they needed to do. And unfortunately, if we continue to have the same people in leadership, then we'll continue to have the same solutions and end up during, in wars, etc. We don't even know what what life would be like if we had equality at the tops of these organizations and at the tops of these governments around the world. So my push is really to say, you know, we need to really try to, to move towards that in order to have a different point of view, because different point of views lead to a better world. Hmm. Um, that's interesting, because I tend to look at it as though there are fewer women in, in government or at the top of government, because a lot of women don't want that role. I know that I wouldn't. Um, I know that's like, and there are women who do, so more power to them. Um, but I guess I don't, I don't foresee having the same number of women as men in, in the top of government as something that's necessarily beneficial or, um, to all of society, because Mm -hmm. I feel like it would be pushing women into something that maybe they are not interested in. And this is why it's a provocative question. You know, I, I see yes, it very differently it is. than that. But this is why I hope that this conversation can, you know, can take place. Are we sure that women don't want those or are they just being guided outside of that, you know? Or is it just easier or are we just tired of, of pushing and we and, and not getting there? I think I think these are all, you know, provocative questions to, to bring forth the conversation of feminism as we move forward. Right. Yeah, interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about the Nazi occupation in Italy? Yes. Yeah, so that so in 1943, basically, when Mussolini was ousted, and when the Allies came in, the Germans ended up putting him in power in, in a puppet state in the Republic of Salo. And then the Germans came in to northern Italy, and basically took over and said, well, you know, you're part of this now and we are going to be your friends and we're going to you know help take care of you etc but of course that wasn't really the case and as soon as the partisans who were the people who were really trying to help end the war on behalf of the allies and they were hiding in the mountains all along the the um, dolomites which are r- right next to Fonzazo, which is the town where, where Under the Light of the Italian Moon is about that mm. as soon as the partisans started to sabotage the nazis the Nazis really took it out on the civilians. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there's a website that is an atlas of all the atrocities by the Nazis and fascists. And you can actually type in Belluno, which is the the province, and you just see a sea of red. And it's all of the different awful things that had happened, whether it be hangings, various types of of torture, et cetera, that had happened to the people there. And they they started something called the Repressalia Tedesca, which meant that for one German killed, 10 Italians would be killed. And this had a massive impact and and unfortunately a very sad impact. So it was actually one of those atrocities that is what my grandmother told me about in the first place back when I was in high school. And that kind of, um, you know, instigated my initial curiosity about this. But, But it was a very sad time. So if you imagine for a woman on her own without a husband in Nazi occupied Italy, you've got 
Germans, you've got Nazi soldiers all around you, you've got partisans. I mean, just a very, very difficult time. And then trying to save your children and make sure that you can survive that. So it was very, very difficult in Northern Italy during, during World War II and during Nazi occupation, particularly after 1943. Yeah, I can only imagine. And then what role did Catholicism play in Italy and in your book? Sure. So Catholicism in, in this particular region, I mean, obviously Roman, the Roman Catholic Church is very important right. to Italy, but in this region, it's, it, they're very, very faithful people. They're, they're, it's, it's very heavily Catholic, and the Virgin Mary is actually a, a very important symbol. So all of the women in my family, if you look at all the pictures all the way, you know, back as far as I can go, including myself, wear the, wear the medallion of the Virgin Mary around our necks. And again, I think, I think the Virgin Mary is a really interesting symbol in the book because again, she, you know, she suffered, she, she brought her child into the world and, and she's this symbol of, of softness and grace. But I love, I love the statue of the Virgin Mary when she's stepping on the snake with a bare foot. I think that's such a, a perfect example that, you know, again, to the, what we were talking about before, men may fight with guns and, and, you know, create rebellion that way. Women might do it in a different way, but it doesn't, it's not to say that it's not strong. It's a different type of strength. And I think that, I, I think that's a really interesting um, thing to look at from a symbol perspective is, is the Virgin Mary as a symbol and also just as, as a symbol for mothers and, and, and for women in general. So. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting. The, um the picture of the, her, heel on the snake's head. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that comes from scripture where it talks about that Jesus will will crush the head of the snake, mm-hmm. the head of the serpent. So um, so let's talk a little bit about your career. I know you did some very different things before you started writing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us how what you did before and how you got into writing then? Yeah. So, I mean, I always loved to write from the time I was quite young. But my my career and my my education was focused on on business and and uh, marketing and and large international companies and working you know working in large international companies around the world. I love I love you know a variety of cultures. As I said, we really wanted to move abroad to have a global perspective on on living, and so um, I've always loved to kind of manage large brands in different environments and different cultures. So I've always managed kind of large consumer packaged good or fashion and beauty brands, but in, a, in Europe, Middle East, Africa, et cetera. So that's kind of my, my career outside of writing. So my writing was really in those hidden moments, you know, kind of like, I, I call it like my second child because it was early mornings, weekends, vacations for the past 14 years, as I've been, you know, raising my daughter, it's been there always. And, and I've always been working on this book, going to various classes mm. and I can take classes on the craft, working with the best editors I could, et cetera. And so, yeah, it's always been there, but my, my other career will continue. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Well, are you going to continue writing? I do intend to continue writing. In fact, there's a minor character in Under the Light of the Italian Moon who, during the course of my research, I ended up finding out that she left a lot of audio interviews about her life and she had helped some of the partisans and she had actually received a commendation from the British government for hiding British soldiers in the mountains. And so she's got a really interesting story. She's left a lot behind. And she kept saying in those audio interviews, I should have written a book. My life was so incredible. I should have written a book. 
So she's not here anymore, mm. but I do feel like she's really speaking to me saying, that's probably the next book that needs to be written. So I have started it. I've got about 20,000 words in, but um, yeah, over, hopefully it doesn't take me 14 years to finish that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's great. That sounds that sounds in, like another important work too. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think it would be interesting also, there's there's definitely, I wouldn't say a cliffhanger, but there's some questions that I, that readers are coming back with. There's a couple of key key people that, you know, everyone's saying, I want to know more about these characters. I want to know what happens next. I want to know what happened with this. You know, people are getting really into the characters. So I do think there is an opportunity to return to Fonzazo at some point too for another book. So probably oh, two books that are that are out there that I can think of right now. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so this is a question I ask all my guests. Mm-hmm. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Yeah, I mean, this, you know, as we kind of have already been been talking about, I mean, just seeing what ha- what these women went through and how strong they were, I think, first of all, realizing that their blood runs through my veins and it runs through all of our veins. And, you know, yeah. under the light of the Italian moon, the moon that shined upon them is that same moon that looks over us. So, you know, we have so much in common with those people. And sometimes we look at a black and white picture and we think, oh, they didn't have emotions. They were tougher back then. They were stronger. I think the reality is, is that we're strong today too. We're going through some really difficult things and we can be resilient just as they were resilient. But also that, you know, they'd want to see us progressing and they'd want to see us moving forward too. So I think it's about learning what they went through and then seeing if we can't change the world for the better for, so that when people look back on history, they see that we've done something as well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Women today are very strong. I've seen it so many times. Yes. Um, Yeah. So what is the best way for readers to purchase your book and to follow you? Sure. So in terms of, uh, I'll talk about following me first. You can go to uh, boldwomanwriting.com, which is my website. And you can see lots of pictures on there. There's a there's a beautiful uh, trailer. There's some freebies on there. You can download an excerpt of the book. You can also get a fantastic discussion guide, which is you know has recipes and provocative questions and pictures. So all of that is at boldwomanwriting.com. And there's also a really wonderful discussion guide. So go there, and from there you can also connect to my Instagram, which is boldwomanwriting. Uh, where I put up a lot of pictures and and events and things like that. And then in terms of purchasing the book, you can buy it on Amazon. Under the Light of the Italian Moon is there, both for Kindle and for a paperback. But I would love if you went to any of your independent bookshops and and bought it or bookshop.org if you're in the U.S. or Barnes & Noble. Um, You know, it's always good to help support the the independents as well. Absolutely. is it available at bookshops in the U.S. then? I, is Amsterdam Amsterdam Publishing, is that a U.K.? It's actually out of the Netherlands. Yeah, it's out of the Netherlands. Okay. So there's a few independents who are carrying it. The best one to buy it is actually an Italian-American store in Boston called I Am Books. So they uh-huh. have it and they also have book plates. And then there's a few shops that are in the U.S. Uh, in in Chicago who are carrying it, but right now it's on barnesandnoble.com. It's not in the stores yet. And it's on Indigo in Canada, on in Canada. So chapters, but not in the stores it's online. Right. I'm not sure if I mentioned during our recording that you are joining us from the UK. So that's right. Um, London. Yeah. Oh, great. 
Um, so I just wanted to mention that I was on your website earlier today looking at it and noticed, um, and I can't remember the exact quote now, but it was something about how how strong Italian women in particular are. And I, I just thought that was really interesting because I, I married into an Italian family. So I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's really true. <laughs> but, <laughs> Particularly if they're Italian. Yes. If you watch the book yeah. trailer, yes, you will you will see that. Yeah, I feel that. I do feel that. I think there's something there's something there. I mean, it's all of us certainly, but right. um but there's something about being Italian and an Italian woman that that I think I'm I'm exceptionally proud of. Yeah. Well, and rightly so. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jennifer. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, friends, you know the drill. Visit the show notes to find a link to Jennifer's book and also to her um, social media and website. And also, um, you can join our Facebook group, Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast group. If you're a regular listener to Historical Fiction Unpacked, it would be awesome if you could leave a star rating and review and make sure you are subscribed so you get a new episode every week. Also, if you are a regular listener and you're enjoying these podcasts and you have the means to support us further, please visit my Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash Treat. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. You can also get there from the show notes. Well, my friends, I'm going to leave you with a quote as usual. This one from Jane Goodall. And I think it's appropriate to our discussion today. What you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week. 